Hey, once again, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Jordan. If I didn't catch you earlier, I want to make one uh, quick invite into the ministry of our church. Before we get into the Word, we want to invite you each week into an integral part of doing ministry, which is part of what we're going to talk about in the sermon, is what do we do as a church? And so uh, one of the, the uh, most obvious and yet um, most taken-for-granted ministries in the church is the kids' ministry. And if you haven't noticed, we're sort of building on. We had a cardboard out there that we've wrapped in to, to add another room. We have a lot of kiddos, and uh, that's a good thing, but we have had to add uh, even another room, which means we need more volunteers. And so I want to encourage you, if you are not a part of uh, the kids' ministry, um, whether you're a parent who, you know, super appreciates the kids' ministry because your kids aren't climbing on you right now, or whether you are, you know, long past your days of, of raising kids and, and, you know, doing that sort of thing, uh, I would encourage you to consider how is God calling you to be a part of cultivating the gospel in the next generation? How is God calling you to to care for the ones that he says so clearly that he loves so dearly, right? Uh, and, and he redirects his um, disciples' attention in a famous story where the kids are coming to him and the disciples try to, you know, block him. Okay, he's got more important things to do. Jesus says, no, no, you let those kids come to me. And so he makes this statement about the value that kiddos have. And uh, I think that we should uh, consider that as we ourselves, uh, you know, take part in a church and as we think through, okay, how is he calling us to make sure that we're embodying that same value of not only letting the kiddos come, but making sure they know how they can come. And so I want to invite you to, to sign up or ask questions about, hey, I, I'm not sure. Maybe this is you. I don't know how I could serve back there, but maybe there is a space. Maybe I could do something for them. I would encourage you to stop by the, the um, kids' check-in counter on your way out today and just say hi to Rachel and say, hey, I'm not sure how you could use me, but here I am. We would love to have you be a part of that growing ministry. So uh, that's Journey Kids. That's our on-ramp for today. Let's shift now to Ephesians chapter 3. Um, it is officially flannel season. <laughs> See lots and lots. Uh, the first six people in the door, three of us had flannels on. So I was like, man, it's going to be, uh, some of y'all just itching to wear your warm weather clothes. And so the first chill, uh, we got them on. And so uh, today, I have the privilege of continuing our series that, that Chad and Caleb have started for us, uh, a four-week series called Who is the Church? And, and today, we're going to look at a, a large portion of Scripture uh, from Ephesians 3. We're going to move through it quickly and draw some, some high level, some kind of big picture points out of it, and then we'll wrap up with a couple of other uh, really poignant um, passages uh, as we as we wrap up today. But uh, so we've talked about, you know, God making for himself a people. Um, and then there's always been that emphasis on this is a people, right? And, and, and that God made us to be a part of a kingdom or a citizenship where we're in submission to him and we're a part of this people. And then, um, you know, Caleb talked to, Chad set us up with that. And then Caleb talked to us about how it's not just about being reconciled to God, which is amazing, but we're also reconciled to one another and that we're a people in community with one another. And, and so uh, as we continue to look at this question in this series, who is the church? I want to go to a, a bit of an obvious uh, question when you're getting to know who someone is. What's one of the first questions you ask when you're getting to know someone new? You want to know what? What do you do, right? What do you do? What's your job? You're, and, and listen, I push back against that a little bit. Like, we want to make sure that we're not settling our identity in our job. And so that's a hard one because, you know, we don't want to be totally identified and, and 
you know, just uh, known simply for what we do in our role. But it is helpful as you're getting to know, okay, who is this person? How do they spend their time? And, and you know, what's their passion or what is their role? Like we ask, what do you do? And so it's, it's, it's also relevant if we're talking about the people of God. If we're talking about who is the church. It's a, it's a, it stands as a good question. What, what do you do? What is, what is this people? This citizenship, this people that are in submission to God and created in his image and, and called to be his people and then called to be in this incredible community with one another. But is it, what do you do? Is it just the social club? Is it just, okay, come and be a part of this deal and now you have your tribe or your people and, and that's, there's goodness to that, right, to being known and having that community. But what do, you, what do you do? Is there a purpose to this? Why do you gather? Why? Why is there money given? Why is there songs saying? Why? Why? Right? What do you do? That's just what I want to look at today. Um, and, and I want to focus on Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 is an incredible verse that speaks to the the, the magnitude of what the church has been called and commissioned to do. And so I want to read that first, and then we're going to set in this passage uh, for the rest of the day and draw out some, some more, uh, a bit fuller picture, if you will. But just look at verse 10 with me first of Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find some in the, in the seat backs in front of you, and there you can find this passage on page 977. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to, for that to be uh, our gift to you. Take that home. If you know somebody that doesn't have a Bible, Take that home to them. Uh, we love the Word of God, and we believe it's of high value. And so take it. Give it away or take it and use it yourself. So Ephesians chapter 3, let's look at verse 10 first. It says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to who? To the rulers and authorities, not just in the world, but in heavenly places. So we're just saying about that. We're just saying about, you know, the, the, the spiritual, all the heavens and all the, the principalities, like declaring that he's holy. And, and here we have this passage that says, this is the role of the church, that, that through the church, this manifold, this incredible, layered, unknown, like by anybody else in the world, wisdom of God might be made known and proclaimed even to the powers that be even in the spiritual realm. I want you to sit with that for a moment. And know, like, when, when, you, when you ask, what, what's the point of the church? What, what are we here for? I hope that this passage will begin to raise our gaze, not just a bit, but a whole lot. Because too often we can think about um, the church is in terms of me, and, and what do I want, and do they, do they do things the way that I would like for them to do? Right? Do they... Do they preach the way that I want them? Do they sing the songs that I want? Do they have the style, the lights, the, you know, the, the, the whatever, right? We, we're thinking of in terms of is this what I want? But I, I want this to raise your gaze to realize that what we're a part of when we're talking about a local church is something that God has commissioned to, to preach his wisdom, to unveil, to make known his wisdom to the powers of the universe. Like, this is an incredible task. So how do we do that, right? What, what does that actually mean? And so I, I want to uh, talk about that today. And, and in summary, it's, it's, we're a people who uh, have a new identity, and so we live so radically that our life is full of good deeds to the point that God gets the glory because of the way we live our lives. 
So that's, the, that's, that's where we're headed, is that we are a people that are so radically changed by Jesus that we live our life in such a way that the world takes note and gives glory, not to us, but to Jesus. But how? So I want to fill in the backstory just a bit. As any good documentary, uh, you know, you're celebrating, you know, documentaries get made about people who have done incredible things, right? Uh, but before you can appreciate somebody who's done incredible things, it's helpful in any good documentary, you're going to know a little bit about their backstory, a little bit about how they got there, how they became the person that they are. And so I want to do that a bit with the church today. And I think Ephesians chapter 3 is just chock full of that. So I want to really read it in its entirety and we'll pause and make a few uh, observations as we go, and then we're going to end with looking at the, the real practical how. What does this look like for us to embody this to the world? So let's just, let's just read this, and again, we'll, we'll pause at certain points and make some observations, but we won't go verse by verse uh, as we normally do. So there'll be portions of this that we don't address today, but we're going to kind of look at it as a big picture. So verse 1 of chapter 3 says, for this reason, all right, so right there we got to, we got to, Stop and go, okay, what reason, what is he talking about, right? Because we can't just start a chapter going for this reason. Clearly, he's referencing something that he's previously taught. And if you'll just look back at, at go, go three or four verses, uh, you know, sooner in verse, or in chapter 2, verse 19, and we could keep going all the way back, but, but for the sake of time, we'll just go to 19. It says, since, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow, what, citizens, Right? Chad talked about that, and, and with the saints and the members of the household of God, Caleb talked about that, right, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is the church. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what is he saying? He's saying, this is, the, this is the church. So when he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, the Gentiles, and he's going to go into this whole deal that we're about to look at, but what he's talking about is because Jesus is making for himself a people, and those people are the new temple. This is profound, and, and, and we've had... Uh, like I said, previous two sermons have kind of walked us through that, but this is what this is built on, that, that we are now the people being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that's what's in view. That's the context, is the church, the people of God being brought into reconciliation with God himself and then with one another and living life and, and having what we're going to see today is a common mission with one another. Uh, let's just say from the get-go, uh, the, 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 the best breeding ground for conflict and disunity and fussing and fighting is a people without a mission. A people without a mission will find reasons to fuss and backbite and to call out and to criticize. If, but it's much harder to criticize and to fuss when you've when you got, a, you got a, row, a oar in your hand and you're helping row the boat. When you've got a reason to get up and go and to do something, you're much less likely to be critical and fuss and fight and, and get distracted. Some of y'all literally have come to our church because you are turned off by some of the nonsense that you've seen in other churches where they're infighting about the color of the carpet. How many of y'all don't care about the color of our carpet? Right? And so some of y'all have come here because, like, you want to be a church that has a purpose. You want a church that, that is cared about people and about truth. And we don't want to fight about that. And I'm not simply calling out other churches, but I'm saying, like, that's part of what we share as a value as a people and how we've, you know, really grown, uh, you know, to be who we are is because we want to see the, the, the mission of God brought together. And so this is what, this is, this is the context 
that, uh, that Paul is talking about here is that we are called to be the people of God. And we <clears throat> are then sent on a mission. And that mission is the, is the greatest deterrent to disunity, fighting, backbiting, all of those things. Okay, So here's, here's, here's what Paul is going to say about the church. So hear this. This is written to a church, to a people. A local gathered, the Ephesians, it's not just the name of one of the books. It's, it's a people that have gathered in a city of Ephesus to be the people of God. They are the church at Ephesus. This is people, not unlike you and I. They have gathered together uh, to sit under the teaching of God's word, to sing songs. And, and this is a letter written by Paul to a people. So this is the very context in which this comes. Too often we read the Bible as individuals. And it is never written to individuals. Even the, the passages like we're studying in First, you know, First Timothy, it's written to Timothy, but it is in view of a people, of a church. And so it is never written to an individual. It's written to a people. We need to identify ourselves as that and receive it as such. And this is what Paul is saying. So for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So Paul is saying, assuming you've heard like how this message even got to you, these are Gentile people, they're not Jewish people, they weren't waiting for the Messiah, but the Messiah has come and now sent people to tell of his salvation to people outside of the Jewish uh, nation. And so he's, I'm assuming you've heard of this, verse 3, of how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what Paul is saying is there is something historically noteworthy about the formation of the church, of the local church. It is absolutely a culmination of what God has been doing in forming himself a people from the Old Testament, a Jewish people and a nation. It is 100% a culmination of that. But Paul says, make no mistake, it is something new and better. It is something historically noteworthy that this has shifted now from just being a, a people defined by a, a nation, but rather is a, is a people defined by life, like salvation, and, and by Jesus and his blood. And this is going to go beyond ethnic borders and beyond sovereign. It's going to go all the way to the ends of the earth. And so Paul is making note of this and, and saying, like, this is, this is where we find ourselves. This wasn't revealed to other generations. He's telling them, listen, you are at a moment where no one else has been. No one has known this kind of, to, to stand and to, to, to transform this meal of the Passover that they were so familiar with and to say, no, 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 this is no longer about a lamb that you brought to, to, to get temporary access into God's uh, presence, as Chad said, this is now about the Savior of the world, the God who's uh, taken on flesh and stepped into the world. Now, he's the lamb. His body was broken. His blood was shed. Paul is saying, make no mistake, this is incredibly, historically, like, trajectory changing to be a part of Jesus' local church. Don't take this too lightly. This is a blood-bought privilege and right to, to be here. It's incredible. So this is what Paul is setting up. <clears throat> and he says, uh, verse 6, the mystery that is 
The Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here, Paul is going to see our, our first point Paul talks about in, in, in chapter or in verse 6 is that we are a people seeking the salvation of others. So here's what I want us to know. That what does the church do? We're seeking the salvation of others. We have a message that goes beyond ourselves. It is not just about us. And, and listen, it is not less than being about us. Jesus absolutely died for you. 100%. Like, we don't want to take that lightly. You need to know that that's how much he values you as an individual. However, you need to also know that just because he's gotten you, he is not done. He, he's not finished. It, it is not complete until he's got people from the entire globe. Okay? This is what he's going. And so we need to keep this in mind that too often we think, okay, like, it's good, it's good, like he's got me, and like he must be content now that he's got me on his team. Listen, angels rejoice when you repented, and you became a child of God. It is no less than that. However, it is far more than that. Because now, as a part of the people of God, as a part of the family of God, we are sent on mission to others, to bring others into the family of God. Jesus sent his disciples into all the world. He says, I've got to go, y'all. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he came to give himself for us so that we could be saved. But as God in the flesh, he says, i got to go, and I'm going to go back to heaven, and when I go, I'm going to send the helper. God in the spirit is going to come and embody all of you as believers, and you're going to be scattered, and you're going to be my witnesses. And he says, it's going to start right here in Jerusalem, but then it's going to go into Judea, and into Samaria, and into the ends of the earth. So it's going to, it's going to spread. It's going to go from here to here to here to here. And he says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups. This is what Jesus has called his disciples. So we are a people who are seeking the salvation of others. Here, it's a categorical, like, Mind blown that the Gentiles are hearing about this salvation promised to the Jews. And so we need to know that we are a people who are sent on this mission to others. It's not just about us. We're sent to others. It's bigger than you. The whole earth is his target. I, I, I think I've told this story before, but I love I, one, of, one of my favorite basketball players that I didn't get to watch much just because my age is Larry Bird. And I love hearing stories. I think I'm like seventh cousins with him, true story. But uh, never got him to a family reunion or anything. But there's some blood there. I just didn't get the basketball genetics. So, um, man, but I love hearing stories about him calling his shot. Telling guys, hey, I'm going like, to catch it and I'm going to dribble to the elbow and I'm going to shoot it in your face. And he would do it over and over again. You just like, it, it seemed as though basketball became boring to him unless he, didn't, unless he did stuff like that. He was so good unassumingly good, right? Awkward is all mess, but like just deadly called a shot. I love it. Jesus, in a sense, has called a shot. He has told us where he is going. He has told us where his message will be proclaimed. And guess what? <laughs> He's laughably better and more effective than Larry Bird. He will get his mission accomplished. He tells us, Matthew 14, he says, listen, when the, when the gospel's preached to all nations, then the end will come. Two people are so, get, so freaked out and fighting and whatever, wondering about when is the end going to come. And here's what he says, when my mission is complete, I will come. So guess what? He ain't here. 
The mission isn't complete, so go. Like, instead of worrying about, well, is it this sign or this sign? And I don't know. Have you heard who we're, like, if this guy becomes president, he's got to be the Antichrist. I am sure of it, right? And, like, we got all these things. Did you take the, did you take the, the vaccine? I think that might be the mark of the beast. Right? And we get all spun out. I don't know. Is it this? Is it this? And Jesus is like, listen, when I get my people, I'll be back to get my people. So guess what? We're still here. It means he ain't got all of his people. And who does he want to get his people? The church. He sends us. Listen to Revelation 7. This is, this is the end of our story. You get to know what you're working toward. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 12 is this incredible passage. He says, after this, I looked. This is the end. This is prophecy toward the end. This is the throne. This is, the, this is how it all is. History's end is, is here. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude of people that no one could number from every, tra- every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders or, <clears throat> and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces in the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The church is about others. It's, we're sent. It's not just about us. It's about others, right? So that's the first thing we see. We're going to go on. Verse 8 shows us that these, these others are a bunch of unlikelies of this gospel. Verse 7, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So Paul's saying, I didn't become a pastor preaching to these churches, starting these churches because of my own merit. He says, it's only by God's grace. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So listen, who are we as a church? Like, what do we do? We're a bunch of unlikelies. That means the church is not made up like a social club would be of people who, who share, you know, a certain value, like-mindedness, whatever. No, no. We're a bunch of unlikelies. Paul is saying, I am the least likely because I was an enemy of the church. If you know Paul's story, he once was Saul and Saul was literally chasing down Christians to kill them and persecute them. So if you're thinking of building a church, you're thinking of putting together a people that will represent this Jesus, who's on the top of your list? Not the guy guy killing people that represent Jesus. Generally speaking, that's not who you're going after. But that's who Jesus goes after, and that's who Jesus commissions to go and tell other unlikely people about this gospel. Listen, this is all throughout the scriptures, if you'll read it. The story of Jonah, it's a famous story. Yes, he got swallowed by a fish, but the big idea is that Joseph got swallowed by a fish. Jonah got swallowed by a fish because he didn't want to go do what God told him to do. You know why? He didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. God tells him, go preach to the new. And he's like, I hate those people. And not just like the way we hate a sports rival, but more in the way that we hate ISIS. Because we hate what they do. The Ninevites were a, a terrorist-like people to Jonah's people. Honestly, he had good reason to feel what he felt. And he says, man, God, I know you. You're, 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 you're really good and you're kind and you'll forgive those jokers. 
I don't want that. That's why Jonah runs. And guess what? God gets his way. Jonah turns his butt around, not voluntarily, and he goes and preaches to the Ninevites. A really simple message, almost a begrudging message. All right, God, you want me to tell them you'll forgive them? Hey, guys, you're all going to die if you don't repent. And God forgives it like they repent. Those are unlikelies. Nobody drafted the Ninevites to become a part of the people of God. And yet, that's who God goes after. This is a story after story. Paul is one more unlikely in the list of unlikelies that Jesus has already filled to the max. John wrote story after story after story. That's the, the, the book of, of the Bible that we've been preaching through and we'll go back to in just a couple weeks. And, and he tells us story after story after story. And he says, hey, y'all, I couldn't even write all the stories. Because if I did, like, there's, there's not enough ink in enough books but Jesus has filled his kingdom with unlikelies, with people whose society would never go after. See, society tells us, like the cultural economy is that the most popular, the best looking, the, who has the most money, the best friends, like we're kind of in the midst of this with homecoming, you got all of this, who got asked, who didn't, who made, like all of these things, like we have this cultural economy that the, the best looking people with the most money, with the best friends, with all this life, they have the greatest worth. This is what our world tells us. Functionally, this is how we operate. Not in the kingdom. Not with God's people. See, we were people sought not based on our status and worth. It's not why Jesus saved you. If you believe that, you've not experienced the grace of Jesus. But, so we're not defined, we don't define each other by that. Jesus strongly, or James, Jesus' half-brother, strongly forbids favoritism in the church. He says, hey, you're the people of God. Don't you dare treat the wealthy person with status better than the homeless person when they come into your church. That sounds really good. I want you to think about it. Somebody who everybody knows, who's got some money, they walk in here. Ooh, did you know so-and-so's here? Did you see so-and-so? Did you see so-and-so? You better go say hi to him. Pastor, did you see so-and-so's here? You better go say hi. I just want to make sure you know. And usually that's people with status, position, money. James says, don't you dare do that. Give them a chair. Give them a spot. Make sure they're taken care of. Meanwhile, the homeless person, the person with no, nothing to offer comes in. And you don't do, no, no. That's not what the people of God do because that's not how we're defined. That's not who we are. That's not how we were treated. So that's not how we treat others. This is our backstory. This is who we're formed by. He says, you better give the person with nothing to offer this place just as much honor and glory as the person who could fund our building campaign. It's not how we operate. We're full of unlikelies. Myself and four other people, five other people, I don't know, a group of us are going in a couple weeks to preach the gospel to some unlikelies. Those of you that know where we're going to visit the O family in, in Central Asia, it, it's, it's a country that most people would go, what? You're going to go there? And then they find out that we're going to visit some friends locally that have given up their lives to, to be missionaries there, and they go, what? You're going to go there? That place is, right? 
fill in the blank, known for terrorism, known for, what if, what if you get kidnapped, what if, what, what if whatever, like all of these things, because we're going, whoa, 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 that doesn't seem likely, and yet, Revelation 7 says there'll be people from that country around the throne. Go tell them. Go tell them. This is a gospel value that defines the people of God. Verse 11 through 12 goes on to, to, to talk about this, us being a people with a new identity that, that, that transforms how we see life and even suffering. Okay, Verse uh, 11 <clears throat> says that this was according to the eternal purpose that he, was, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now listen, here's the deal. If you look around at the world's efforts and what everybody's trying to do, at the root of it, at the root of so much nonsense and the, the pictures you see on Instagram and the posts you see on Facebook and, and the people's job, like trying to drive you know, up the, the, the job chain and get this, get that, status this, at the root of all of it, guess what it is? Insecurity. Insecurity. We don't feel like we have value unless, I could post this picture, unless these people, that, unless I have this size of waist, unless I have this amount of whatever, right? It's all driven by insecurity. And here's what he's saying. The people of God are no longer driven by insecurity, but rather by boldness and access to the king of kings. And that leads to confidence through our faith in him. We are people with an identity that has been transformed. Boldly approaching God because our identity is no longer fragile and performance-based. Actually, that's not true. It is performance-based, but it ain't our performance. Our identity is no longer based on our performance, but rather on Jesus. And his performance is perfect, and it is righteous, and it is his righteousness that allows us to have confidence and, 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 and boldness as we approach God. And guess what? That allows us to face down this life. steadfast, with firm footing. Because when you're, when you're defined and driven by the insecurities of your own flesh and you're trying to get validation from the world, when those things don't go your way or when suffering comes, you're devastated. But Paul says, verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul's in jail. Paul's, Paul's suffering physical struggle and pain and shipwreck and arrest. And people would say, man, Paul, I thought, I thought Jesus saved you. I thought Jesus had good plans for you, Paul. Doesn't Jeremiah say that he's got plans to, not to harm you but to prosper you? It looks like you're being harmed, Paul. Paul says, you, you, you don't get it. People of God are transformed in their identity such that suffering comes, hardship comes, and we sing through the night. We sing with joy. Why? Because we're a people who are now satisfied, a people who are drinking from an eternal well, a people with a quenched thirst. He goes on, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that, that according to the riches of glory he may grant you. This is, what, this is what Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. He's what, this is what I want, that you <coughs> would have 
According to the riches of his glory, Paul's saying, not because he can create it, not because he's a good pastor and a really good preacher, but because Jesus is rich with glory, and we're now Jesus' people, so that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. This is what God wants for you. This is the eternal life. This is the plans for your good and not to harm you. It's about your inner being. It's about your soul. It's about your, your, the, trajectory, the trajectory of your eternal life. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, not tossed to and fro, but rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. It's going to take strength to understand what God has for us because it's that good. It's that overwhelming. It's that rich. You're going to need to be strong enough to carry it. And he's praying this, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints because if you don't have strength, the suffering will come and you'll, you'll walk away. But if you have strength, then you can comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled, filled with all the fullness of God. You remember John 6 when Jesus filled his people with abundance. He gives them, they eat to their full from a couple fish, a couple pieces of bread. Jesus feeds thousands and thousands of people and not just get a little bit and try to be satisfied, but eat till you're filled. And then he's got more left over. That's the abundance of riches that Jesus has. And he's saying, this church, Jesus did that miracle so that you would know that each week when you come and you dip this bread in this cup, that you, you get another glimpse and another layer and another level of appreciation for Jesus' love and for his glory. Paul says, I want that for you. You'll be a people who are satisfied with an eternal fountain of people who have had their thirst quenched. Think about the difference between a people on a hot desert day, a people who have found water, and a people who have not. That's the picture that Paul is painting for what the church looks like in the midst of a world. And why? All this, what's the point? Verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. What he's saying, all this is for the glory of what? The journey church? No. For Jesus. It's all about Jesus. These are a people. Who we as the church? We're Jesus' people. We spend our lives making much of Jesus so that his glory would be known throughout all generations forever and ever. And that happens through the church, that we are an ordinary human people, but we are being used to do extraordinary, godly things empowered by the Spirit. And that brings glory to Jesus. There should be things happening here as the people of God that can only be explained because we're the people of God and because the Spirit is at work. So, a people being used by God to bring glory to Jesus. So, the question you should be asking is, okay, how? What do we actually do then? This is a bit of our backstory. This is who we are. This is what defines us. What does that lead this kind of a people who are about others, not about ourselves, who are unlikely, right, who are given a new identity, who aren't shaken by the suffering of the world, who are a people that are, are filled and quenched in our thirst and our hunger, 
right? Uh, people that are being used by God. What does that actually mean that we do? And here's what it says just in the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 10. Just look over there with me. It won't be on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, 10 says, For we are, this is the church, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Say it with me. Good works. Whoa, 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 whoa. Christianity is not about doing stuff. You don't earn your salvation by doing good works. Like good works becomes like a bad word in a, in a church that believes in by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ, in Christ alone, right? We're like, ooh, don't talk about works. I don't like that. Like you got to do something with that. Created the church not just to be like, cool, we're in the social club. We got our stuff now. Like, look at us. No, no. He says, y'all got work to do. There's work. We're created for something. You're created to be, like, to do something. My, wife, my, uh, my daughter and I were headed to town. I was working on plumbing stuff. So it was like the third time I've been to town. I don't know if that's how y'all do plumbing. I've never just had one trip to the store. I hate plumbing. I think plumbing and drywall will be a part of what you're doing in hell. Um, <laughs> And there will be stores that you have to go to <laughs> to get the fittings that you're trying to, like. So I think this was the second trip to town, and we're coming up Market Street, and I see on the other side of the tower, I see a woman, like, doing one of these things. And I was like, well, this is odd. I don't know what's happening. And I start to, like, draw my daughter's attention to it. And, and then I get on around, I see it's a whole class of women. Um, they're doing some kind of a uh, fitness deal. And I was like, oh, cool, she's not by herself. I didn't feel as bad. If it was just one gal, I was going to be like, man, I'm both like, I'm kind of impressed, actually. Like, you're just that bold. You just go out there and do it. But it's a whole class, and they're doing fitness stuff. Uh, and it, and it, was, it was interesting, and, you know, I'm sure there's a strategy with that. And it was a beautiful day. Like, it was cool. Like, all right, I get it. You're part of a class. But it got me thinking. It's interesting, the stuff that we do to exercise our bodies. Because, and I wonder what, like, I know that God's sovereign. God's not surprised by our level of technology. He's not surprised by our economy currently and all of those things. He's not surprised that we are a sedentary culture. However, it's interesting, we have all this scientific evidence, all this people saying, like, hey, guess what? If you just sit all the time, it ain't good for you. Like, physically, mentally, emotionally, it's bad for you. Some of y'all have had surgeries and all, like you got back, like, all, like Steve Blanford here, he's like, sit up straight, y'all, like, goodness, right? We're, we're, like, you can't, if you, like, this is not how we were made to, like, live our lives. Jacks you up. So what do we do? We have to join gyms and do exercise things to, to give our bodies a taste of what we're actually made to do. Because thousands of years ago, ain't nobody had to do that. You had to go to the well and crank that sucker up, right? And then carry that water all the way back home. And you had to go kill stuff. and drag, think, think about what you killed. Killed a deer? Some of y'all, you kill a deer now, you take your four-wheeler out there, your ATV, your side-by-side, your tractor, you go out there and you get that deer, you throw it in there. Man, it was hard to pull that deer up. Well, guess what? They said to drag that thing all the way back to camp. Right? They weren't at CrossFit pulling a rope, right? They're just pulling their dinner, God made our bodies to do stuff, to be active. You see what I'm getting at? And now because of our, the way our lives are set up, we have to find ways to like, get our bodies active. Otherwise, we're like, I hurt, and I'm sick. And more doctors should be saying, 
Do something because it's good. Anyway, that's an aside. But what that says is our bodies were made for like physical work. And when you don't do that work, it has negative effects. Well, guess what? The church was made for good works. And when you don't do good works as a church, it has negative effects. You fight about carpet color. And you pick out the stupid words that the pastor said that aren't in the dictionary. And you, and you fuss about them. And you go somewhere else because you, you don't have anything to do. But when you have something to do, your body feels better. Well, guess what? We're Christ's body. We're going to look at that next week. And Christ's body has a purpose. We're to be about good works. We're to do something. A couple verses as we end. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells a people, not individually, but a people, that you are what? The salt of the earth. Why does he say that? Because salt isn't just about flavor for them. It's about preservation. He's saying this world's decaying. That's the other thing. You drug that piece of meat back, you know, you drug that animal back to the camp. Guess what? You can't just throw it in the freezer and eat it when you're ready. You got to make preparations. You got to preserve it. So what they do, they use salt. They push it down into the meat and, and, and get it down into the crevices. Why was it to preserve that meat? So salt is primarily a preservative in this time. There's flavor to it. Both applications are relevant for us. But as a preservative, it keeps the world from decaying. So Jesus is saying, this world is, is headed in a direction that it was not my design, and it is going toward death and destruction. But my people, you're my people, you're going to be like salt that keeps it from completely decaying. That's what, what he's putting before. All right? And so he goes on to say, you are the light of the world. You're salt and you're light. You're like a city set on a hill. No, uh, like people don't just light a lamp and put it in their basket, but they'd rather put it on a stand so it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, let's, let, let's be clear. We do not do good works in order to earn our salvation. That's religion. That's heresy. We cannot do enough good works to earn our salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Absolutely. Amen. That's good news. But because we are saved by such a grace, we are now compelled, not in order to earn our salvation, but because our salvation is so great. We're compelled to do good works. And Jesus says it right here, that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? According to Jesus, the good news of his disciples are the window in this world through which people could see and adore the glory of God. When people begin to live like Jesus, the rest of the world can see, oh, that's, like, that's, that's noteworthy. That makes me want to know about their God. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says that Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, a church, for his own possession, a people who are zealous for what? Good works. Hey, listen, this gets controversial and sometimes it gets minimized because we don't want to be a church that preaches works for salvation, but once we understand salvation, we are compelled to works. The body of Christ is made for work. And we don't have to come up with weird exercises that simulate real work the way that gyms have to. I, listen, I do the fitness stuff too, y'all. I, like, 
I'm not making fun of that. I'm just saying, it is interesting to think the ways we're trying to emulate letting our bodies move the way that God has made us to move. We don't have to do that as a church. You don't have to make up weird program things to do. Sometimes exercises are really unnatural things. You're like, why are you doing that? Right? And, and sometimes the church does that same thing. They create programs that are really unnatural and strange. You're like, why are you doing that? I remember Pastor Rusty's, uh, y'all that knew him, his, he had a brother who was Catholic and did, didn't really believe. I mean, he said he was Catholic, but anyway, Rusty was talking about reading this book and learning how to be a good neighbor and learning to meet your neighbors and, you know, all this stuff. And his brother was just like, what? You guys are goofy. Why are you reading a book? I don't need a, I don't need a book to know how to be a good neighbor. He's like, I just walk my dog and talk to my neighbors. He's like, I know all my neighbors. Y'all are making this too hard. That's what we do as church sometimes. We come up with these unnatural things. Let me come up with a program. And every Wednesday night from 6 to 8, I'm going to go knock on doors and look weird and give them a track. And I, Listen, God has saved a lot of people that way. I'm not trying to make light of it. But sometimes what we need to see is that, hey, actually just living your life the way that God has called you to live will, will, will actually be the greatest kingdom advancer. So what does that look like? I've got to get going to the end here. We are made... To be a people who step in and live radically. James 1.27 is a famous passage that it talks about around adoption and foster care and these things. But the, the bigger context, James 1.27, I don't have it on the screen, but it says that pure and undefiled religion, religion that is acceptable by God, whatever your translation says, what he's saying is you want to you know what the purest form of being like Jesus is, it's that you see the most vulnerable in our, in our community. For them it was widows and orphans. They couldn't care for themselves. He says, and what it means to represent Jesus is that you don't just walk on by. This sounds familiar. Parable of the Good Samaritan. A lot of religious people, they just walked on by. James is saying, no, no, no. Be like Jesus. You don't just walk by people who are suffering. You see them and you move toward them. You do something. Do good work. See, we are made to be a people who long suffer with addicts that everybody else has given up on. People who relapse over and over again. We stay with them. We love them. We point them to Jesus and we walk with them. And, and, and we stay with them when everybody else has bailed. Right? We are, we are people who change our future plans in order to adopt a child that doesn't have a home. Even though you've already made your, your retirement plan, you know, what the, you know what you have in mind. Like We are people that go, yeah, but this kid has value. And, and Jesus says, i got to live for that kid if I want to live for him. And, and so we do radical things. We do crazy things. It's really common for people in foster care and adoptive to get into it. I talked to just one of our uh, most recent foster families here at the church. I saw at Walmart the other night, and they, they were at this point of going, what have we got ourselves into? Why? Because it's freaking hard. It wasn't what they thought their life would sign up to be. It's hard. Other people who have adopted... Right, talk to them. Talk to the Walters that brought a kiddo in after theirs. I mean, they would be almost done raising kids. McKenna's a junior. They said, no, no, no. Caleb matters. He's ours. So now, you got an eight-year-old or whatever. And, and it's really common for people in those situations to go, man, I don't know. I think I might have ruined my life. And that's real. It's a real feeling. 
we as God's people go, no, no, no. You've not ruined your life because Jesus said that whoever gives up their life for me and my sake, that's where they'll find life. And it'll be returned to them a hundredfold. One of our staff members at Restore was processing through this very hard reality. Again, she's got older boys, would be almost done, but they're fostering and they've they've got little girls, like under four, two of them. And one of them's hard, behaviors are hard. And she said, sometimes I feel like, like we would be traveling, we would be doing all these things, but we're not, we're foster parents. And sometimes I feel like she's ruining our life. She goes, but then Jesus reminds me that, no, 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 she's keeping us from ruining our life. Because if Jesus says, you give all of your life to stuff that you can't take into eternity, then you are a fool. It's Jim Elliott, I think, that said, he who is no fool who gives his life. Ah, I don't have the quote ready. Amy, help me out. He's no fool who gives his life for that which he can't keep. I don't know. you got to look it up. This is what happens. I preach for three weeks. There's got all kinds of stuff in me. See, we're not operating on the same cultural economy as the rest of the world because we've been defined by Jesus. Right? So why do you care about the young woman who has a pregnancy that she hasn't planned and no one else? Why? Because Jesus cares about her. And Jesus says that she will experience his love not by somebody else. We got to get out of this mindset that somebody else will do it. They ain't doing it. The government can't do it. It ain't supposed to do it. It's supposed to be us, the people of God, are supposed to be the ones keeping people from suffering and having no one. We are supposed to be the ones that step in. It was Christians in the first century that picked up babies off of doorsteps that were left there to die and raised them themselves. And guess what? God lit that flame and grew his church through that. Because ain't nobody else doing that. When, when the world sees a people who don't run from suffering and hard things, but instead run toward it, the world has to stop and acknowledge that something supernatural is happening there. We become a people who step in and toward people when the rest of the world is running away. This is globally and locally. This is why we're going to Central Asia. This is why the old family lives in Central Asia. Final verse, John chapter 14. We'll get to this. We keep progressing in John, but I want you to hear Jesus says this incredible thing. I want you to think about what Jesus does. And so often we just romanticize what the, what the Messiah has done and the healings and the way that he did it. And we think, man, that's just so awesome. I wish I could see something like that. And here Jesus says, like, you're going to keep doing what I do. John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me 
will also do the works that I do. And even and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Again, Jesus ain't saying the show's over because he's leaving. He's saying it's just about to begin. Because when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to empower a whole people to live the way that I've been living. So this is what we need to ask ourselves. Are we living lives that bring glory to Jesus? Are you salty? Not like, are you hateful? Is your life salty? Is it preserving this dark world? Is it doing, are you spending your life doing anything that will matter in eternity? Is, is there light coming from you? Or is your life pretty ordinary and explainable? Is your life, would your life be exactly the same if there was no resurrection promise? There was no Holy Spirit power? If so, Jesus says, you're, you're, you're missing out. And Jesus says, I got a whole lot of stuff that's awesome that I'm going to do. Jesus is going to accomplish Revelation chapter 7. I want to be a part of it. I want people to know about the good news of Jesus. And I want to give my life to that end. Let's pray. Jesus, save us from ourselves. Save us from becoming an inward-focused people. Keep us from becoming a socially justice, like just doing good stuff for the sake of it. Keep us from that, Lord. But man, call us out of our slumber as your people. I love this church. And I love the stories of lives that have been given over to you in a way that causes the world's head to turn. I love it. And I'm proud to be a part of it. And I'm really really thankful. I pray that we would not be content, though, until we are seeing more and more of your love. Our hearts are being strengthened through suffering, through, through staying put and staying the course, that through that, continuing to say yes to hard things and hard people, that through that, we get to see and know and experience the breadth and the depth and the height and the glory of your love. Y'all come do whatever Jesus tells you to do with us. Pray. Pray with me.